see some sleepy faces out there this morning. All right. Hey, we're glad that you are here uh, with us this morning. Uh, obligatory introduction if you haven't been here the last two weeks. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel, and I get to share God's Word with you this morning. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 18, if you want to turn there uh, today. Uh, before we jump in, I did want to kind of bring to your attention, wanted to direct you guys to some position papers uh, that the elder board here at Bethel has put together. Uh, you can find them on our website if you're interested there. Go under the Our Beliefs link. Uh, it's where you'll find things like our doctrinal statement and some other stuff. Um, but there, we want you to know what, what we as an elder board think and believe, and there are, uh, we certainly want you to find our doctrinal statement to know what we're rooted in, but there's also some cultural uh, issues that are, are relevant for today that we want to make sure that, uh, that you guys understood our position on some things. So uh, if that's something that interests you, I do uh, invite you to go check those out. Um, but let's get into it, and uh, let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we come here this morning from many different places, and, and maybe I mean that geographically, maybe I mean that emotionally, maybe I mean that spiritually. Uh, Lord, we come here. Uh, some of us, it's been a great week, and we have seen you at, at work, and it has been awesome. Maybe others, Lord, we come here, and, and it's been a hard week and a dark week, and uh, we find ourselves with, with more questions than answers. Uh, Lord, maybe we're here this morning and we're wide awake and we had a great night's sleep and, and we're ready to, to engage and to learn. And maybe, Lord, there's others of us that are pulled ourselves out of bed this morning and are, uh, are just kind of here making it through. Um, Lord, wherever we are, wherever we find ourselves this morning, uh, our goal is to lift you up, to make your name glorified, uh, to bring honor to you. Heavenly Father, we want to do that by uh, our worship as we've done so far this morning. We want to do that by our our listening, our hearing, and our, our being instructed by the word. Uh, so God, I pray that you would speak uh, to us through this passage, through the story uh, of Elijah that, that we have in front of us today. May your word do what you say that it does. May it be powerful. May it cut as it needs to. May it encourage where it needs to. May it do what you intend to do with it. So I ask for your help with this. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, a few years back, a friend of mine, his name was Seth, and him and I got the terrible idea to do a triathlon. Uh, we had trained and we had done a marathon together, and this was the next illogical step in our journey together as friends. Uh, and I remember a morning in January in the dead of winter when we met at the UAF pool for the first time to attempt swimming. Uh, Realizing that we would eventually need to swim 1.2 miles, uh, this was a test to see about the feasibility of the goal that we were considering. And we begrudgingly jumped into the ice-cold water that is the UAF pool. If you've swam there, you know what I'm talking about. And I think for the first time, we each made it about 15 minutes, um, which for two people that weren't swimmers felt like we had been swimming for days if you can relate to that. And it kicked off a seven-month training program uh, as we prepared for our first triathlon. Uh, some of that training was fun, uh, but most of it was just a, a lot of hard work and a lot of good thing I already told Seth that I'd meet him at the pool at 7 a.m. or I wouldn't be going uh, kind of moments. 
Now, training was important. It had a very important role to play. It was vital to build the the technique. Uh, I had to learn how to swim better, a lot better. Uh, It helped me build muscle. It helped me build endurance, the things that would be required to finish the race. But the goal of us getting together was not the training. The goal of us getting together was eventually the race. Now, that race uh, was six years ago. Um, I can still remember very vividly uh, the, the nerves in my stomach the morning of the race as, as we got geared up and ready to start. Then the questions start to come into your mind. Can I do this? There's nothing about this that screams triathlete. <laughs> what am I doing out here? And in that moment, you, you walk back in your mind to your training, and you remind yourself that, that you've been preparing for this for seven months. This is why you train, and this is why you practice, because there comes a time when the gun goes off, and it's time to go. It's time to actually do the race. And I think that's a, a good picture for where we find ourselves with Elijah this morning. We've been working through the story of Elijah the last uh, two weeks, and we've seen God at work in his life, putting him through some tough training for something that God intends to do with him down the road. It hasn't always been easy, and it most certainly hasn't always been fun. The first week, we saw Elijah demonstrate tremendous courage as he, he boldly confronted a truly wicked king and told him that God is proclaiming a drought on the land. You'd think that because Elijah did what was asked of him, that, that, that God would sort of let him be on autopilot for a while and take it easy and coast for a bit. But things, as we saw last week, just kept getting tougher and tougher and tougher for Elijah. Here, maybe we find ourselves going, well, what about God's goodness? Is it worth it to be obedient? Do, do we get the results that we're hoping for? And what we would maybe have considered hardships in the life of Elijah, God would consider opportunities for Elijah to trust him fully and completely because he was preparing him for something big, and that's something we're going to look at this week. It wasn't an easy journey for Elijah to get there, but as we enter 1 Kings chapter 18, we see that Elijah is in full trust mode, and he's going to need it today. We left off last week with just a teaser of of where uh, this week is going to go, the very first uh, two verses of chapter 18. This confrontation that's been brewing between Elijah and King Ahab is about to go down, and it says this, after a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. The drought had gone on for for over three years, and God had decided that that was enough, and so he directs Elijah to go to King Ahab so that he can send rain on the land. And while going to King Ahab sounds easy, what God is really saying likely is go confront the guy that will kill you the moment that he sees you, and let's see how this goes. Elijah uh, obediently and boldly does as he is instructed. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning. And so we're going to start with this epic battle on Mount Carmel. And it's going to start off with an accusation from Ahab. Verse 16 of chapter 18. 
So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Elijah saw him, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? Imagine what Elijah is thinking in this moment. Really? I'm the problem? What about a little personal responsibility here, Ahab? Has the drought been tough? Yes. Am I really the reason for the drought? I'm going to say no. We see this blaming of Ahab against Elijah as just being ridiculous. It has the feeling of of someone who is texting and driving and then rear-ends the person in front of them and gets mad at the car in front of them for slowing down. When reality is the problem that they slowed down or is the problem that you were texting? Ahab had been at the wheel of Israel and had been negligently driving them into the ditch, and yet he has the audacity to blame Elijah. Then we see Elijah's response. I haven't made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's command, and you have followed the Baals. Now, if this doesn't take you back to third grade, a little bit of the playground of uh, I know you are, but what am I? Then you're, you got to make sure you're reading it. That, that, that's what I kind of hear a little bit, the, the accusation and, and the rebuttal. But these guys aren't going to figure it out through arguing. Uh, these guys aren't going to solve it that way. And so we see the next step is the challenge. Picking up in verse 19. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. The people said nothing, and then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bowls for us. Let Baal's prophet choose ones for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bowl and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God." And then all the people said, what you say is good. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So this scene uh, is happening and and they say, grab all of your prophets and and meet me at Mount Carmel. Uh, Bring all the people, as many people in the land as we can get word to, and have them come. We're going to want some witnesses for this as we bring this uh, to a conclusion. You can imagine the, the buzz uh, amongst the people as they're, they're walking uh, there. What's about to happen? This crazy prophet guy who supposedly is responsible for it not raining is challenging how many of our prophets? 850 to 1? Oh, I've got to see this. So Elijah challenges the people to pick a side as he, as he speaks to them. He says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Wavering, fence-sitting, flip-flopping, lukewarm, uncommitted. How long will you waver, he asked them. 
And the question paints this, this visual picture of a, of a bird hopping down a branch and, and it gets to the fork in the branch and then it, it, it imagines that it can continue to walk on both branches until it eventually falls down the middle. At a certain point, you have to pick a side. That's what Elijah said. That's what he challenged the people with. He said, you have the freedom to follow God or you have the freedom not to follow God but you don't get to kind of do both. It doesn't work when we try to juggle our commitment to God. See, Israel wanted to keep one foot in the traditional faith of Israel and mainly the the blessings part, I imagine. And the other part, they liked this, this new worship of Baal that was different and exciting. If we're honest, some of us can, can find ourselves in a similar place. We can be the same way. We, we want the, the blessings of God and his provision and his protection, but we just don't really like the inconvenience of, of obedience and doing things God's way. So Elijah challenges them with this, and we're told that the people said nothing. Uh, they didn't really like to be called out. Maybe it was guilt. Uh, they didn't have a rebuttal to Elijah's challenge to them. So here's what's going to happen in, in, in verse uh, 22. They each get a bull. Um, and Elijah, he's such a generous guy. Uh, he goes, I will even let you choose your bull first. Home bull advantage in your court right here. And says, then prepare them for an offering and put some wood on it, but do not light it. Verse 24, then call in the name of your God and I will call in the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. So we're each going to take a bowl. We're just going to get it ready. First God to burn it with fire wins. And then the people say, what you say is good. And it turns their, their voices have come back. Uh, but this is an interesting confrontation because Baal is supposed to be the storm God, the God that brings the rain. And storms are known for their lightning. And lightning is known for its fire. And Sure, he's kind of been letting them down with the whole rain thing for the last three years, but maybe he's been saving himself for this big fire competition. If Baal was all that they thought that he was, this should be over before it even starts. Challenging Baal to a fire-starting contest, in the eyes of the Canaanites, it would be similar to me challenging LeBron James to a slam dunk competition. Uh, Not really a fair fight, right? Should be over before it even starts. To top it off, Mount Carmel was considered a a sacred place for Baal worship. This was his home turf as well. So it was a contest to do something he should have been particularly good at in a place that he should have been particularly powerful. They had a significant numerical advantage. The prophets there on behalf of Baal probably loved every single thing about this. They're like, you want to challenge me at this? You want to settle it this way? Absolutely. Verse 26, they took the bowl and given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. They danced around the altar that they had made. Verse 27 is where the story really takes a turn for me that that I find particularly uh, enjoyable. Uh, I like when I find sarcasm in the Bible. It helps me feel better about the way God made me. Uh, I love when people in the Bible do what I likely would have done in that situation, and maybe you find yourself in in different characters as well, but I, I see some of me in Elijah, particularly verse 27. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. 
Surely he is a God. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or, or traveling or maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. Is your God too deep in thought to hear you right now? Did he excuse himself to the little God's room right now? Is he busy? Should we just wait a little longer? Did he go on vacation? Are the Reds running? Is he down dip netting right now? Did he stay up too late at the sun run last night and your God sleepy today? Is there some sort of governmental holiday? Is, did his cell phone die? Did he leave his fire in his other pants? You get the picture that in this moment, in this situation, Elijah is the only one laughing. But I imagine he was having a good time. Now, one point I want to make really clear this morning. This is not the manual for evangelism and apologetics 101. (laughs) Going around sarcastically mocking what other people uh, have put their faith in is not a very successful way to teach them about Jesus. Um, He's been hiding out for the last three and a half years, and maybe his social skills were particularly rusty, but this is the tact that he goes with. This makes them mad. The prophets get really mad, and so they try harder and actually gets a little bit scary. Verse 28. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. There was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Swing and a miss. Now it's Elijah's turn in verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. And they came to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. And Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes, descended from Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. And he arranged the wood and cut the bowl into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. Now we see here he's making the point that this challenge wasn't challenging enough for the true God. So he's upping the difficulty. So they just drenched the thing. And if there's one thing Alaskans know, it's the importance of starting fire with good dry wood. Uh, We heat with a a wood stove at home, uh, and if I'm trying to start any piece of wood that's wet, it's a nightmare to get it going. We all know that. But we see this interesting thing where, where, where in the midst of a drought, Elijah has them drench the altar. Now, if it's been dry for three and a half years, where did this water come from? If you don't know the the geography of Mount Carmel, the mountain was located very close to the Mediterranean. Uh, So while the rain had stopped, the ocean had not uh, gone away. It did not dry up. And there's some debate as to how high up the mountain they are where they would have had this contest, but they were at least somewhat up the mountain. And so Elijah tells them, Grab some jars, and we're told that they're large jars. These weren't little jars. Says, grab some jars and, and haul some water up here for me. So they get their jars, and they journey down the mountain, and they go get some water from the, the Mediterranean, and, and they bring it back up the mountain. And 
I can almost picture Elijah over there going, they're doing it. They're doing it. They're really doing it. And they, and they drop the first thing of water on there, and then he goes, do it again. <laughs> he goes, I just really like my sacrifices really soaked. I mean, that's my personal preference, but could you go down a, one more time, I mean, two more times for me and get some more water? Now, besides uh, the point of mockery and my own personal amusement, uh, what was the reason behind this water? I think the reason behind it is that it removes any doubt. Skeptics are always going to find a way to explain the impossible and the miraculous. There hadn't been any rain in this area for three and a half years, and so I'm guessing the Israeli version of Smokey the Bear had his fire danger meter set to wood is likely to spontaneously combust is probably the situation there right now but not wood that is soaking wet. Verse 36, At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and you have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. I think sometimes we make prayer more complicated than it needs to be. I personally really enjoy the simplicity uh, we see in this prayer. Two sentences. The other guys had been dancing and singing and praying for hours. But God knows what we need before we even ask him. We aren't convincing him to get on board. And so Elijah essentially says, hey God, these guys have forgotten that you're God. Could you remind them? So we see in verse 38, this is where we see the results. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. Fire consumes the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the dirt, the water. It must have looked like a bomb went off when God was done with it. Verse 39, when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. And they seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. Now, the slaughter in, in here in verse 40 of, of the Baal's prophets, this wasn't just the result of a celebration that had gotten out of hand. Uh, maybe you think of a, a sports team winning a major championship and the people go wild and riot in the streets. They weren't tipping over chariots and letting off fireworks or, or anything like that. Maybe you go, is this cruel? Is this a cruel response? But picture it this way. Imagine a tough conversation with your doctor who tells you that they've discovered a cancerous mass in your body. Their response is, well, let's not get too carried away. We'll, we'll nibble around the edges and see if we can keep it growing any larger, right? You want that doctor to go nuclear on it. Let's remove it and any parts near it that might even possibly be infected. And these false prophets, these prophets of Baal, were cancerous for the spiritual life of Israel, and they needed to be removed. 
God does not come across as the neighborhood bully. He comes across as the good physician willing to go the lengths necessary to heal and restore his people. A couple of different things that we can learn from this section. The first is this. God doesn't go halvesies with us. He's not okay with lukewarm. He's not looking for wavering commitments. Make your choice. Are you in or are you out? Get off the fence. We're not looking for undecided swing voters here. Who is your God? Who do you serve? Who do you follow? I think a second thing that we see in this section is that God does not calculate the odds like we do. And I'm very thankful for that. Divine mathematics do not work the same way that human mathematics do. There was nothing about this challenge that made sense from a human perspective. Elijah was not the betting favorite. We look and see impossible. God looks and sees possible. This is not a question of what Elijah could do. This is a question of what God could do. I came across a a quote in my reading this week that, that I really enjoyed from a man named Howard Hendricks, and he says this, We are all faced with a series of great opportunities brilliantly disguised as unsolvable problems. Now, this right here, we could end this. This could be a full sermon. Uh, So much, in fact, I I preached a very similar sermon uh, about four years ago uh, on this exact passage. But I think there's a little bit more that we can learn if we let the story keep playing out. Uh, This chapter is finishing up with with God bringing the rain, uh, much to the relief of Israel, but Elijah's story is not done. And so actually in Act 2 today, we're going to see a spiritual breakdown in the wilderness. We're going to see Elijah take off running and and be filled with despair. 1 Kings chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Ahab goes back and he reports all these things to his wife Jezebel, who would have been expecting to hear about the triumphant results of her prophets, but that is exactly the opposite of what Ahab has to report. They lost. They lost bad. They lost real bad. So she comes to her senses and says, I think I've got this all wrong. Maybe this whole Baal thing isn't going to pan out. Maybe we'll try this Yahweh thing. Nope. Doesn't do that. She sends a message to Elijah and tells him essentially that whole mountain thing sounds cool, but you surviving this weekend might be the biggest miracle you're ever going to witness. You had my prophets killed. Prepare to join them. I'm coming for you. So what's Elijah's response? This, This man we've been looking at for the last few weeks. Surely he says, I've got nothing to fear. My God will protect me. There's nothing that she can do to harm me because God is in control. If the past three years have taught me anything, it's that. Not exactly. 
So the prophet who had patiently and obediently been following God's leading takes off on his own, filled with fear. And he starts running, literally, figuratively. What's crazy is this isn't years later. This isn't months later. This is hours later. And I think we're meant to see in this that even after great spiritual triumphs, we are all susceptible to failure. Even after times of great growth and faith, it is still easy not to trust God. As sinners, we are naturally inclined to distrust and to lean on our own understanding. Elijah comes off an actual spiritual mountaintop experience and now finds himself within hours running in fear. And I am not mocking Elijah by any stretch. He paints a very realistic example of how I imagine I would have dealt with this situation. We can switch from moments of great strength to great weakness very quick. I know that I can. How many of us is this described? Maybe you see an answer to a, to a long uh, prayed prayer. Maybe you spent a, a week at camp or a conference or a retreat. Maybe you had a tough conversation that you'd been praying about and you saw God at work through it. Maybe you just got back from a missions trip. Whatever it is, you're, you're riding high in your faith. And then life takes one swing at you. And you're right back where you started, if not further back. Maybe you give up on yourself, or maybe you begin to give up on God. But either way, you went from the top of the hill to the bottom of the valley pretty quick. We see that God is not going to leave Elijah like that. We're going to see that God in this situation is going to provide. Starting in verse 5 again. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mount of God. We see in this situation that God sends an angel to care for Elijah. What he needed was a good nap and some food and some water to nourish him. God's answer was, let's slow down. Let's get you taken care of. We'll start over again. I think we see the importance of our, the physical nature of our bodies uh, in this situation. Uh, don't ever underestimate the importance of a good nap and a good meal. I don't think Elijah was just simply hangry, but it seems to be a part of it. We see God does not respond with criticism, with a lecture, with an I told you so. He simply offers a demonstration of his love. When you find yourself in the valley, God's first statement isn't, how did you get here? What's wrong with you? It's, Let's get you back out of here and get you where you need to be. Now, there's something that, that I appreciate when I see spiritual giants of, of the Christian faith struggle and make mistakes, not with the intent of, of laughing at them, but it helps me not get so down on myself when I'm struggling as well. Here we see Elijah, this giant, throwing in the towel 
after this amazing experience on Mount Carmel. Peter spends all this time with Jesus but denies him when things get hard. Paul, first among sinners, he tells us, says, I find myself doing exactly the things I don't want to do. Now, this doesn't give us free license to sin. It doesn't give us license not to try. But it does give me the encouragement to get back up and keep going because they did too. And God continues to use them after their mistakes. God continues to be patient with them. I think one of the good arguments for the authenticity of the Bible is how embarrassing it is for some of its key players. If someone were to counterfeit a religion, wouldn't they make sure that all of the key people looked very reliable, very trustworthy, very emotionally stable all the time? But I love that the Bible contains real people with real strengths and real weaknesses. Helps me relate to it as I'm reading through it. Helps me feel like I can be like them and helps me see how they can be like me, both in the good and the bad. We're also reminded of a simple truth here that sometimes the, the best thing God can ever do is to not answer our prayers. Elijah asked God to end him. Take me now. God chose to overlook that prayer and to not answer that one. So we see the, the final thing this morning is that God's going to speak to Elijah. Verse 9, there he went into a cave and he spent the night and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out, stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah is telling God, I've worked very hard. It doesn't seem to be making a difference. Feels like the bad guys are still winning. I'm the only one left standing, and it doesn't seem like that's going to be for much longer. So God says, Elijah, go outside and look for me. Then wind, and then an earthquake, and then fire. And Elijah had just seen God work with fire. Surely he would see God in the fire. But no. And finally, a whisper. Maybe Elijah expected God to be in those big, dramatic, earth-shaking displays. God caused all of these to happen, but he chose to speak to Elijah through the small, through the subtle, through the whisper. And what we're going to see, if if you were to read on, is that God's going to tell him, it's time to get back to work. Break's over. There's still more that I want to do with you. You need your help. Let's get back to work. So a few points of application that I think we can pull out of this second half of the story, this breakdown in the wilderness, and that is we are all susceptible to failure, particularly after great successes. We cannot live off of yesterday's victories, but we also cannot be stuck on yesterday's defeats. There's more to do today, and there's more to do tomorrow. 
I think we see in Elijah a danger because of his isolation. He left his servant behind. He ran away from all his help. He didn't have that second opinion that we often need when we begin to go off track. He was isolated. Now, if you're tired, if you're worn out and depressed, being in isolation is the last thing that you need. And that's an easier principle to hear in June. It might be a little more difficult to hear in January, but it's still very true. We are in danger when we're isolated. And the last thing I think we see here with Elijah is that even with his failures, God still had work for him to do. So one of the things I love about sports, um, there's usually a next play, there's usually a next game. You learn from your mistakes and you move on. And I think that's very true with God as well. There was still work for Elijah to do. This didn't disqualify him. This didn't rule him out. He wasn't finished. We see this in Elijah, and it's true for us. It can be a very short distance from the top of Mount Carmel to the bottom of the Valley of Despair, and Elijah takes that journey very quickly. But God walked with him the whole way, and God walks with us the whole way. The highs and the lows. I'll tell you right now, if you're here today and you're on the mountain, rejoice. Be thankful for it. But be on guard. Be thoughtful. Be purposeful. If you're in the valley right now, if that's where, where you feel like you are, I want to encourage you, God's there with you. And he's whispering to you like a loving father, what do we need to do to get you back on track here? Grab my hand. Will you follow me? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, wherever we are, you are with us. Through the ups, through the downs, through the ins, through the outs, there's nowhere that we can go to escape you. I mean that in an encouraging way, Lord, because sometimes we try to run away from you. Sometimes we don't want anything to do with you. We know that you patiently, like a father, whisper to us and call us back to you. You ask us at times, what are you doing here? Where are you going? Heavenly Father, may we grab on to you. May we reach out to you. May we know that we are not where we need to be, that we are not where you want us to be. May we trust you enough to follow your hand to guide us back. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love that is so patient, that is so kind, that is so nurturing. I know how many times I've needed it, and I know how many times I will continue to need it. And for it, I am very thankful. Thank you, Father. Amen.